Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. Tim's back. This is so exciting. Hey, you guys. Hey. Tim had his break. He got married. But now he's back as a married man. So we, we've, we've seen you since then. Even some of our listeners. We saw each other at the then. Close Reads Conference. That's right. I saw you last or two weeks ago at my house. You came over. And, yeah, that's right. That's right. Man, that was so much fun. I think we conveyed that to you, Heidi. But let me convey it to you in a public setting how much fun that was. It was really fun. We had Which is exactly such a good what time. I was it was just good company. Do. Yeah. 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 I, I was going to convey in a public setting congratulations to you and Galen. We're very happy for you. But I'm also going to tell you, we are happy to have you back on the show. Happy to get the gang, the gang back together. It's nice to be back together with the gang. And I want to thank David, you and Bethany for coming to our wedding. And I want to send apologies to Heidi for getting COVID basically the day you got on the plane to come to our wedding. That was really just so disappointing. These, these trials are good for our souls. I hear. Yes. Yeah, they are. They are. But it sounds like you guys got to have a great time There's together. There's no like holiness without suffering. So There's no holiness without suffering. You're exactly right. right. <laughs> we had a good time. We had a really good time without David at dinner a couple weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. We um, forgot to take a picture and send it. I know. It. And send it to David. We were going to like surprise. To give me a. What photo not photobomb. We were going to surprise. What would you call that? When there's got to be, you know how it like, was definitely a personal attack though. So. It was a personal yeah. attack. You know, like photobombing, you know, when I say photobombing, you mean like somebody's taking a picture and somebody sneaks in behind the people that are having the picture. You got photobombed. There's yeah. got to be a name for the thing when like if Heidi and Scott and Galen and I sent a picture of the four of us to David unannounced that we were like together there's got to be a name a for that. Grenade. A photo grenade. There you go. It's just photo showing nade. up right in front of you. David's yeah. just naming things. Yeah. Photo grenade. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you Boom. feel terrible. You like that better than photo torpedo? Because it's kind of like underwater mm. and then surprise. They're both good. I think we might have to workshop this a little. Let me think yeah, about let's this. Let's workshop it a little bit. A little bit more. We also, we are going to discuss... Uh, JL Carr, it's a month in the country. We're going to discuss the first 68 pages or so, which is roughly the first half of the book. Next week, we will discuss to the end, and then we'll do our Q&A. Before we dive into this book, though, we also need to give a shout out to our guy, Logan, and his wife, Carolyn, who had a little baby. They had a baby boy, Logan Moses Green. I think I believe he's going by Moses. He's very, very handsome little fella, and we just wanted to publicly one more time as a group congratulate them on, on this grand occurrence. So uh, welcome to the world, uh, Logan Moses Green, and uh, uh, let your parents sleep a little, a little bit is the only thing we would, we, would, we would ask of you here at these early stages of your life. In the future, we will <laughs> ask more of you, but for now, very little except let your parents sleep. So, <laughs> so just wanted to give, give, uh, give them a shout out. Uh, Logan does a lot for this show behind the scenes usually. Um, and so, you know, it's a great chance for us to just Shout them out, but also just um, pay homage to the work that he does on the show here so that you listeners realize how much he how much he does for us and how much he means to us. So just wanted to say that as well. Either of you want to add anything? No, thanks, Logan. Yeah, you're right. Logan makes us sound, makes me sound a lot better than I am. So you, you, we're grateful. You notice how you switched that from us to me? Yeah, I realized that I'd like, be like implicating people yeah. that I did not Im- mean to implicate. 
Yeah. I, what I, what, what I try to, you know, what I try to just, um, constantly be saying things like he makes Tim and Heidi sound so good together. <laughs> it's just, they sound so much better. Um, <laughs> but no, um, okay. Let's talk about a month in the country. This is, well, I've, said before this is one of my favorite books it's one of those books that not a lot of people have known but definitely has or have read but definitely has a um kind of a cult following it was published in 1980 um and was uh right away nominated for the booker prize and it won the guardian fiction prize in 1980 it's a slim little book um it's about just a couple of characters but our main guy is tom birkin he's a world war one veteran who is um, uncovering a mural in a village church in England uh, that is thought to exist under coats of whitewash. He doesn't know exactly what he is going to be discovering or what it looks like, but he's going to put his expertise to use and, and see what he can find. And then, of course, there is um, it being set in a church. There are lots of questions of faith and symbolism uh, and especially the, the judgment, which the judgment factor, What what is in this this uh, mural will be discussed more in the second episode because at this point we don't know, um, of course. And then there's this. Then there's the second character, who is uh, basically digging up a grave in the field next to the church. And then there's a couple of characters from the village all around it. So that's a kind of a basic summary for those of you who are for some reason listening without reading or just haven't read it in a while, or just you know want a quick bit of context. Um, Tim. Yes. What is your, this is kind of, every now and then we run into a book where it is a book that one of us really loves. No, none of the other two of us have read it. This happens every now and then. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's plenty of times when we read the classics that have this, have a big reputation, have kind of an outsized yeah. reputation or a book that we've all read at least once. This is going to be one of those examples where it's kind of a, a heart book situation to use your phrase. And then, and then for the other two people, it's new. What are your first impressions of this book? Don't hold back knowing that I like this book. Right. I love this book. I haven't finished it. Logan, yet. insert cheering. Insert yeah, right. cheering sound effects. <laughs> I, you know, I finished this half of the reading and I thought, how have I never heard of this book? Like I, if I had heard of it, but never read it, that would make sense, but I have never read it, nor have I heard a single word about it. And I'm shocked. It's just so beautiful. And it made me ask, oh, why the lack of reputation? Like was J.L. Carr a hermit who refused to do public relations tours? Or I, it just didn't make any sense to me. A, a book of this quality usually kind of like rises to the level of some sort of like literary consciousness, but it's not. It was not on my radar at all. Well, it's interesting because, like I said, it won the Booker Prize, which is the prize right. for the best novel written in English and published in the UK or Ireland. So it's a it's a pretty prestigious prize. And then it, it also was made into a movie in 1987, which stars Colin Firth, Kenneth Branagh, Natasha Richardson. So, you know, that at the time though they're not like quite what they became but yeah. usually movies like that get revisited as a as an actor like Colin Firth or you know Kenneth Branagh become like big names mm. but yeah i mean in in NYRB New York Review of Books which specializes in kind of republishing books that have i don't know if i would say fallen out of favor but kind of been forgotten but yeah. are classics they have they brought it back in um 
2000 and it's been a pretty steady seller but for them but it's not still that you know we're not talking the new york times list or anything here heidi what did you think of of this book well look what's your first impressions and then we'll dig deeper into some some specifics of what we like about it what we think it does well so i also loved it like loved it so so much and i'm wondering if that's just going to be a universal reaction to this book like there's it's so lovely and on on multiple levels the writing is incredible mm. um the story is like haunting uh but also like really funny like the it's it's this interesting portrait of english life at this transitional time in its culture and that like comes through so beautifully um and then i mean man that that overlap of art artist and cosmos is like deeply compelling even if you're not like a it's it it's not so on the nose to be obnoxious but it's it permeates the whole novel so beautifully that even if you're not necessarily a literary reader who's looking for like symbolism and objective correlatives everywhere which we probably shouldn't be should just let it wash over us it's just so beautifully woven in there um yeah it's so good it's and the, the introduction, uh, it's called a masterpiece. And I think that's true. It needs more attention. Mm. I'm really glad we're doing it. Yeah. When we were, you know, one of the things we do is we ask the audience each year what books they would like us to do. And we usually get a big list and then we'll sort of winnow it down. And then we'll choose from that and try to make sure we're choosing things that there is a clamor for it. So there's a, you know, people are hungry for certain books. And then we, you know, we try to make sure we each choose something that, I don't know if we'd say we we each get one book that we just get carte blanche on, but we kind of try to have something that each of us really love. And uh, Loris is the next book we're going to do, and that's one that Heidi is uh, obsessed with. <laughs> um, and this crazy is one of, about that book. Yes. one of these books where, for me, this is the one that I really wanted to push for. And I was like, is it too short? We usually do longer books. Is it too slight? Do is there is it not epic enough? Do I just like it more than I should? So you, you the, the uh, personal confirmation, the personal affirmation I'm getting here is uh, maybe not healthy for me since we talked can, about suffering. Can I soul. remind us all about how we had to bully you into accepting this book I on know. the podcast? I know. Tim and I had to like wear you down. We're like, let's do a month in the country. You said, let's do it. Never mind. We don't need to do it. I know. And, and Tim and I were like, no, let's do it. You love this book. Let's do it. I'm excited to read it. And now we, look I mean, at us, we David. had to force it upon ourselves. Did you do that on purpose? That was really well done. Did I make it seem like it was your idea? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, uh, maybe. I don't know. Good job. I don't think I'm that smart. Yeah. No, it was. Okay, got- yes. So lest we forget. <laughs> yeah. 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 You did have to, did have to force it. Okay. I've got a couple questions here about, about this book. I want to talk about, I guess I want to, have the, the sort of general question of what does this book do well? Because when you read a lot of classic books, you come into them with a, a general sense of what the book seems to do well by reputation, right? A lot of, you know, you read The Great Gatsby, you read Moby Dick, you read Shakespeare, you read Homer. There is a reputation that even if you haven't read it before, you have a general sense of this is a book that's going to do X, Y, and Z, because this kind of book does that, or this author does that. This book, when you come to a book empty with less of a reputation, you know, that's a really open question. One of the, another question that I have um, 
is what do we think the impact is of the brevity of this book? Because it is a short book and I'd like to talk about maybe what, what the, what the impact is of what, as the, on the reader, on the story of having a book that's 130 pages or, or whatever it is. Um, so those are two questions that I have. Uh, let me just start with, we'll go back to Tim. We'll just kind of spin back around. Tim, what do you think this book does especially well? I, for me, the prose is the first thing. Yeah. It's really simple and elegant and it's poetic. It's just so simple to read. It's like drinking cool water. Mm. That's the first thing that strikes me. And the second thing is um, there's a kind of um, mystery in that we want to know what the mural is going to reveal. And I think at the same time, we're wanting to know what's going on with Tom Birkin. Like we know he's back from world war one. We know that his wife has left him. Um, but it seems like there's kind of like an uncovering of him at the same time that we're trying to uncover this medieval mural. And so there's a reason to kind of keep reading forward. And also there's a curiosity about, the relationships that he's forming with, especially like these three people that you mentioned, David moon, another war survivor, uh, this 14 year old girl, Kathy Ellerbeck and the pre the, the relationship with the priest is a little bit less interesting because the priest is just not, he's not a terribly pleasant person, but Alice, his wife is yeah. really interesting. Alice. It seems like, there's some, there's kind of a mystery with her also. So it seems like the mysteries with Alice, with the mural and with Tom are kind of slowly being uncovered. Tim, have you read the whole thing or just this reading? No, just the first the half. Thing? Oh yeah. Okay. I read it all in one day. Okay. <laughs> I was so mesmerized. I mean, that is the great thing about a book like this. You can, it's a weekend book. That's why I always say it's a great summer book. One, yeah. it takes place in the summer and it, you know, it's got that kind of, you got that ability to, if you've got a long weekend or you're on vacation to, to read it, uh, you know, not in one sitting per, perhaps, but over a course of a couple of days. Um, Heidi, what do you, what are some things that you think that it does really well? I like the, uh, the, the mention of like a mystery that Timbridge brought up. Right. Um, I, I think that, yes, it does feel like there's these hidden important, like weighty matters that are being slowly uncovered, which is, exactly what he's doing with the mural, mm -hmm. right? So the whole structure of the book mirrors his work in, during his month in the country. And along with that, it's it's very clear that he is a wounded man, like wounded physically with his facial twitch and then wounded in his soul uh, through war and through his wife leaving him. and. And so there's kind of this tacit expectation that this month in the country is going to be significant to that, right? Uh, and somehow healing to like that wound. Mm. Um, and, and so that draws us in as characters to have a stake in it, even though there's not a lot of action, we mm. have a stake because we want to know, we want to be able to solve the mystery on that puzzle level. And we want, we, we like being led into this kind of healing experience um, that seems extended as an invitation to us, you know? Mm. 
Um, so I, and I also think it's just lovely as modern Americans living this like frenzied life to be invited during the summertime to, um, to this life, to this like simpler, mm-hmm. um, kind of hidden yeah. life. Um, but it's not idealized. I mean, it's, it's not really a pastoral novel in the sense that we, it's not escapism because it's very frank about the fact that the world is breaking apart. That's what world war one did. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet there's still this juxtaposition of like sadness and consolation that I, I think he, he weaves that together in the mood of the writing and the prose as, um, like just really beautifully. Mm-hmm. What about you, David? Yeah, I mean, the prose. I, I one of the there's there's some sentences in it that are just you have to reread them. You know, like those some of those sentences just carry you along. You know, like breeze on a warm summer day or something like that. But some of them kind of you have to reread them because they're so, either so good or they're so interestingly constructed that at first you don't really get the complexity of them. Um, but one thing that I really like about this book is uh, the the melancholy of it. It's not like dark. It doesn't hit you over the face with how... It's not bleak, but there is this definite melancholy. And it's more than nostalgia. I mean, he has this sense of wishing there was a different world, but it's not the kind of novel that looks back at something that he had and says, man, I really wish I could relive my childhood. I really wish I could relive my days at Oxford, or I really, you know, I really wish I could relive my days with my cohort in the military where we had a brotherhood. It's, it's much more melancholy than nostalgic without being bleak. And I think that that, that that's kind of a fine line to capture in a way that you're, that's going to feel that way for your reader too. It's one thing to say that it's something's melancholy, but to make, for, to capture like sort of a, an essential melancholy or cultivate the essence of melancholy in a book like this is, is a really fine line. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so readable because the melancholy is tied up to the, tied in with the mystery. Like the, the mystery is the, like, the mystery, yeah, the mystery is the is, melancholy. The melancholy yeah, exactly. is the mystery. We, go, you're going to say something, Tim, go ahead. I was kind of comparing this book to Brideshead Revisited because we just read it mm-hmm. again yeah. um, when we were at the Close Reads conference. And we were talking a lot about novels and poetry after World War mm-hmm. One because, you know, that's the kind of milieu of Brideshead Revisited and it's the milieu mm-hmm. of this book. And I was thinking about, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent. There are these two responses to World War One. Um, in Great Britain. One of them is the bright young things that Evelyn Waugh is a part of. There's this kind of, it's traditional storytelling, but telling kind of a traditional stories, like kind of unique stories, but it's still like fairly, uh, let's call it conventional prose. It's beautiful prose in the case of Evelyn Waugh, but it's kind of conventional. And then the other response is modernism, kind of the onset of modernism. So James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, really, really experimental. Um, There's a kind of sense that we have to find new forms for the new form of life that we have been given after World War I. So now this book arrives, what is it, 60 years after World War I. And I 
kind of kept expecting our author to break into something like a modernist interiority. And by that, I mean a stream of consciousness that might be a little like along the lines of, like I said, James Joyce or maybe William Faulkner or something like Mm -hmm. that to kind of try to get across what our main character, Tom Birkin is experiencing. Like what he's feeling. After World War One, yeah. yeah, right. Because he's, I mean, because it's, he's clearly shell shocked. He's got what we would call today PTSD. Mm-hmm. But I'm, just, but the book doesn't do that. The book is, um, yeah, it doesn't bring in some kind of like fragmentation to the narrative structure. It is a memory yeah, novel, yeah, right. Yeah, it is. It is a memory novel, and so I was surprised by our author's choice to not do that. I mean. And I mean, the thing that I like the most about the book thus far is the prose. So this is not a complaint at all, but I was just curious because he has this tool available to him, namely kind of like this modernist mode of approaching interiority where the timeline is broken, where consciousness is fractured. And yet he doesn't resort to that. And I'm grateful because those books are harder to read, frankly. Um, I find them to... And we get something. Well, I was just going to say, say I find that although that can be effective in capturing something intellectually or uh, yeah. like imprinting an in experience on a reader that is supposed to yeah. in some small way mirror the interiority or the, 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 the fracturedness that's going on in the inside the character, it can, it can diminish the impact or uh, degree of melancholy. Like you're so kind of intellectually yeah. attuned to whatever he's trying to do with that fracturedness, you know, in, a, in Joyce or Faulkner or something that it can make it emotionally, um, you can become feeling like a little emotionally ambivalent. And this book is so much about the melancholy that I think to do that would strain, would like, it would strain away yes. that sense of melancholy. It would like, or not, yes. not, it wouldn't strain away the sense of melancholy. It would put too many things into the melancholy cocktail <laughs> and uh-huh. it, it would become like the Long Island iced tea situation here instead of like <laughs> a good old fashioned or something like that. Or like, yeah, a, like an assault of right. the senses rather than a, a pleasing and I think of that, the senses. Like what Joyce and Faulkner and those guys are after that suits their purposes. What Carr is after here is something more distilled, more, more pure, more interested in like, particular emotions than trying to imprint something on the reader. I think, I think mm-hmm. so many of those modernists were saying the world is screwed up. How do we respond to this? And they're trying to explain that and imprint something on the hearts and minds of their readers. And I don't think he is so yeah. much trying to imprint some sort of sense of chaos on us as readers. He's trying to like capture that essential melancholy and invite us into the scene. Like I, I one of the things I love about this book is the scene making there's like these little, it's a little bit episodic here and there, but like the, the conversations he has with people, you could, I could see them staged. Like I can see why someone wanted to make a yeah. movie of this within a couple of years of it being made. Heidi, what were you going to say? I think you're, I think you had something that you wanted to jump in here with. Well, it's also just very English. Like mm. that is how the English are. There's, there's this reticence about their inner life. <laughs> And all of that fragmented modernism tends to be more associated with American novels in general. You know, James Joyce is an exception to that, of course. Um, Although not English. It it has, as you you 
point right. Um, as you pointed out, um, Tim, it has that uh, the emotional, the same kind, different style, but the same kind of emotional weight as a novel like Brideshead, mm-hmm. in which it it conveys rather than um, like hits us over the head, right? Yeah. Because the the English culture, and I've I've lived in England for a month in the country many times. Like when we we my husband um, would work out there for a month or two, and I would when my kids were little, and we would just take the kids and go live there. Um, and so we've been immersed in English country life just like this guy, although I wasn't, sadly, wasn't restoring anything in a <laughs> village painting, church. Are right? you kidding? That's like a best life scenario. Um, but it's very true that the English don't encourage, they're not self-revelatory. They're not even, there's there's not necessarily a cultural value of even that kind of self-awareness, right? It's, it's there's this reticence, but along with that, there's also like a great depth of soul because, you know, that's, that's human. Um, and so I, I think that that shows also knowing that our author here was the headmaster of a school and was teaching boys this kind of like English life, right? Like the, mm. um, like what it means to be, let's use a pre-World War One phrase, like a pukasahi, right? Like the, like the, the, the self-control, you don't share your feelings. You don't talk about yourself. You don't put yourself forward. Um, and it's very like a very self-deprecatory culture, especially for men. And, um, and the idea is that there's like this politeness to that. Right. And so it's not like a boys don't cry kind of thing. I'm sure that there's like the dark underbelly of that, but it's more like there's a way to act in public and you don't share your feelings. Um, and like out of respect for others. And, and that's not necessarily an American value, but it is a very English one. And that shows in this novel. And as you both have said, but it, but it seeps through the cracks, right? And that, that's where like the pathos is, that this like melancholy is seeping out and he ends up being able to find it in everybody else around him because they're all just as human kind of behind this mask of manners and they're being able to find each other even through that. Um, and I think that's just really lovely and human. There's a really, you mentioned that he was a, he was a teacher. There's a funny um, story about how after he retired, he went to, um, he, he retired from teaching in 1967. So it's before this book. And he started publishing these, this series of like books that were supposed to like be pocket size, I think. So a lot of them were, um, I think selections of English poets. And, um, sometimes they were about historical events, but the idea was they were pocket size and there were two prices because they wanted children to read them too. So they would have a lower price, which was adapted only to the children's editions. And then he started getting these letters from adults who were using like trying to make their writing look like children (laughs) so they could get the cheaper (laughs) version, (laughs) which is like, you know, I I love the idea of like these just English, these very literate English people who want to read the English poets pretending to be children to get writing left-handed yeah, exactly. in crayon. Um, but yeah. then he did, he and his wife, Sally, 
they 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 were they um there was a church that they actually restored it had been vandalized and then it was going to be uh, like demolished and so they they went on this campaign to to restore it and even the vicar of the area didn't w- want to restore it and they it was saved but then it was turned into a scientific study center instead of a church so like there's a lot of these the confluence of the uh, the the um confluence of modernity on these old churches, these old buildings mm. and on old language, I think was really important to him because he even wrote dictionaries. And in 1986, Oh wow. There's this, there's this story on Wikipedia. Um, and the, he, he had worked on dictionaries earlier in his career and they said, um, they asked him a magazine, asked him to give a dictionary definition of himself, which I think is hilarious. So he said, uh, James Lloyd Carr, a back bedroom publisher of large maps and small books who in an old age unexpectedly wrote six novels, which although highly thought of by a small band of literary supporters and by himself were properly disregarded by the literary world. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, it's like, That's really uh, good. Talking, about, talking about your, what you're saying there, Heidi, about this sort of Englishness of this book, all of that comes out in those stories about J.L. Carr as well. <laughs> That's really great. What a great story. Did you That's see amazing. Um, on the, is it called the epigraph? The kind of like page that has quotes at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is a novel, a small tale generally of love found in Dr. Johnson's dictionary. I really, I really liked that. Small tale. It's a very succinct definition of like- what. A, novel a moment of silence from all three of us after you read that, because it's just so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And there is just this really like in England, there's churches like this everywhere. There's so much, mm-hmm. especially in the country. I, I don't know if it's in this section or next week section, but I'm not going to give anything plot wise away. He goes to ripping cathedral and um, I've been there and it's, it's like this tiny little medieval town and it has a cathedral at the center. And Tim, you've talked about this before at, um, I think it was you who talked about this in, in one of your talks at the Circe conference a few years ago about how in medieval times there, there used, there was always a church at the center of the town and the whole town is built around it and all the roads lead to it uh, because the church was the guiding principle of like the literal center of medieval life geographically. And after World War One, like it's a particularly poignant analogy to the crumbling of culture, what he's doing here, restoring this fresco or this mural in this church that's been whitewashed over. Mm-hmm. And, and he's restoring it, but he's an unbeliever, right? And there's just this really, really interesting um, juxtaposition of faith in this novel um, with unbelief. And this contrast that's very real in England that in, in Europe that's not here in the United States. We don't have this of like the entire uh, the architecture of of English country life is based on Christianity and the way it looks like there's these churches in the center of town and but people don't go there to worship anymore. And so, and people have this like really interesting ambivalence towards the churches and the abbeys 
um, because the history is so fraught and they love it for being old and being representative of their culture, but they don't want the face. Right. Mm. And so it's just, and so it's like always in your face, this thing that you're rejecting and leaving behind as outdated. And yet you still love the architecture. And it's just this like really interesting and defining feature of the English psyche that is embedded within this book and assumed within the book that we as Americans don't necessarily relate to without some help. Hmm. Yeah. That's well said. Do, does the, um, do, does the relationship of Tom and questions of faith, how, how much does that, how, how much does that make up for you? You guys, your interest in the mystery here, because we've got this guy who's working and living in this church and he's uncovering this fresco and it's, it's got a, he, he's realizing early on that there is a judgment scene, right? There's a, some, scene, some scene from the revelation that he's uncovering. And he's so far halfway through the novel, he's uncovered a little bit of it, enough to know what he's looking at. But we're also getting a sense of his, his own ambivalence towards not the stories and not the beauty of the places, but sort of lived faith. Um, which is not surprising per se, given what he's just experienced in World War One. But I'm wondering, like Tim, for you, you, you mentioned the idea of a mystery. Is his ambivalence towards faith, yet being juxtaposed with where he's working, part of that mystery for you? Yeah, it is. Because I want to know... It, his approach to the mural is kind of the approach of a tradesman or a, you know, a, a man who has a task before him that requires skill. Yeah. But there's not much about, okay, so what is his personal relationship to the scene being depicted? Part of me wonders, again, having not finished the book yet, part of me wonders if um, this might be a, how do I say this? If he might be, he thinks that he sees a judgment scene. And I think that my hunch is that it actually is a judgment scene, but I wonder if it's going to be, there's going to be some sort of twist, some sort of play on the judgment scene um, that coincides with his kind of like return to maybe what we would call like health or normalcy or something like that. Um, I, I don't know, obviously I'm speculating, but the fact that he so quickly identifies it as a judgment scene, like when his work is just beginning kind of made me think, okay, is it really a judgment scene or is there something yet to be uncovered that might change his initial, um, speculation about what the scene might be. I might be wrong. It might just be a judgment scene, but that's got me intrigued. Does that make sense? I kind of muddled that. That totally makes sense. Well, everyone loves when Tim makes, makes a prediction. Sense. Yeah, I know. It's like everybody's favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm, because I'm so often so very wrong and well, it's fun for wrong, people who have, it's funny. But yeah, like yeah, yeah, you yeah. just have, you do have an ability to make your predictions based on like true North within a book, mm. I think. And that's, it's compelling. I, I agree. I think that that is part of the mystery. 
one of one of the um, kind of like melancholy aspects of the of the novel for me is that Tom Birkin knows that he's a broken man mm. and he doesn't have yeah. any com- like kind of like meaningful um, like way out of the darkness. Right. And, and so he's kind of waiting. Like he's, he's taking this month in the country. It's this, to get, it's like a gap cushion of time. This like, but yeah, exactly. But he's not necessarily there to heal. There seems an assumption in it about himself. Like if, of, of, there's an assumption that he's an unbeliever. He never, he does come out and say it, but it's not like it creates this big conflict in the story. Like who, you know, I am out here restoring this church and yet right. I don't, he does, this he doesn't in a church and yet I don't dissonance. have faith. Like I'm not, no, he doesn't. And it's not because it's art to him and, mm-hmm. and it's a job. And, and there's kind of this like acceptance of his fate, this like stoic acceptance of his fate and yes this and yet at the same time this like very deep sadness he's not necessarily rooting for himself to be healed we're the ones doing that right we're the ones as readers being like we want you to experience some kind of like meaningful healing and and yet the great tragedy of world war one is encapsulated in this book which is what all these men come back to warner like i guess i'm just in despair like there's no way back There's no way back to meaning. There's no way back to health. The church has failed. The state has failed. War is hell. Like, right. And, 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 and we just accept that. And that's that Englishness, right? That English reticence that is supposed to uphold culture that you just kind of stoically accept, which is there's, that's a very, very different quality, character quality to have in a culture that's able to hold your humanity than in one that is crumbling to pieces around you. And, and that creates in, to me, this like pathos in the story that I feel like I'm the one rooting for him to get better, not even him for himself. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great What do we think he is looking for then? Like, you know, there's no villain to overcome in this book. There's no, uh, I mean, the obstacle is this, the whitewash, (laughs) um, that, you know, in terms of a plot perspective like that's the right. thing that's going to cause him to no longer be in the country i mean we know we have a finite amount of time here Which, that's symbolic <laughs> right. right the church is whitewashing any kind of Wait, meaning you guys yeah. i'm confused i thought it was soot like burn off from candles is it whitewash it's both it's like oh, yeah, oh, like yeah. over okay. time it just uh, layers of things have been put over it yeah okay. probably okay. i think i think the idea is there was soot and dirt and all that and then they painted over that to make things look nice and clean and okay um, well and probably cromwell right probably as as they went through and and either destroyed the churches or whitewashed them um during the english civil war to get rid of all popery right any evidence of 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 their catholic faith like you they would they didn't want to destroy all the village churches the way they did the abbeys so they just like painted over them Can, can i just intersect don't lose your spot david I just want to interject a little story about popery as one does. I read a story. I've, I've read a lot of church history. And one of my favorite stories from the early American colonies is this Protestant church. And I don't know exactly, like maybe it was kind of like downstream from John Wesley. The older people in the congregation were complaining that the younger people in the congregation were singing in harmonies 
And they could not stand it. The older people couldn't stand that the younger people were singing in harmony. And do you know the reason why? Because it smacked of popery. And you're like, wow, harmony as like a relic of the Catholic church. <laughs> like, really? But anyway. That explains why they eventually would hate the Beatles. <laughs> right. They didn't, people didn't want their kids oh, to listen man. to the Beatles because it smacked of popery. I assume that was what they were saying. I'm sure that's what it was. Right. So I guess back to my question, what, what is it that he is, that he is looking for? Does he know what he's looking for? How do you, I don't think so. I don't, I don't know that he's looking. I mean, we're all looking for something, right? Even when we are in despair, we still are looking for something, but I do. Yeah. Ideally not to I don't be in think, despair. Right. Well, and I think he's very close to despair or, or, or believes himself to be in despair and and yet somehow is like gradually awakened or something but hmm. i'm open to your ideas on this um, well we'll we'll have to we need to talk about yeah, that yeah yeah um yeah but he's i don't know that he's uh, he he's out there like looking for love or looking for healing or or seeing any mm-hmm. kind of connection between this uncovering of this mural and the uncovering of his own heart. Like, I don't, I don't, he's not, doesn't seem to be making those connections except from kind of a long distance of time looking back, like it, because it's a memory novel. Um, yeah. Right. But yeah, I don't, I don't see him overtly looking for anything. Do you guys, what do you all think about that? I don't, I don't, I think he knows that he's suffering, but I don't think that he's looking for some specific form of, salvation the closest that i if i were to make a guess it would be alice the priest's wife but i think there's also a sense that she's forbidden and so he i I mean i I, again only halfway through i don't get i think i get a sense that he might be falling in love with her but i also get a sense that um he won't permit that i think he respects the bonds of marriage. That's my hunch. But if I, so if I had to guess one thing that he might be kind of seeking for salvation, it would probably be Alice. David, what do you think? Well, the one thing that does seem like he is looking for is in some degree or another kind of, uh, I was going to say a fresh start, but I don't know that I would say a fresh start so much as a distancing. Like it seems like he is trying to distance himself from his marriage you, you know, the war, it's like, it, he doesn't, you know, he's, he's, he's wandering, but not wandering in search of something so much as to put something else further behind him. That's, that's kind of how I read him. We can talk about the, I think we, let's save Alice for next week and, and possibly the Q and A. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he is a very intelligent and very insightful guy in terms of his, his understanding of how other people work. <laughs> and, um, Again, that's something we can talk about. And so I wonder if one thing I've thought about when reading this book before is how much self-awareness he had in the moment. And that's one of the things that gets kind of blended Mm -hmm. up in a memory novel is you've got him looking back years later and he has some self-awareness about what what he's experienced during this time. But in the moment, what is he, how self-aware is he about his his own problems on the one hand, he seems very self-aware because he recognizes how people look at him and why they interact with him the way they do and all those sorts of things with his, his uh, facial, um, I guess, twitch 
so I don't know his, his, his own self-awareness is just, um, something that's interesting to me, given his awareness of other people. So would he be yeah. able to express what he wants? Probably not, but that doesn't mean that he's not looking for something. Right. Which is one of the things that I think makes this novel, you know, a little subtly interesting. <laughs> Heidi, go ahead. Or Tim, go ahead. And then Heidi. No, go ahead, Tim. Uh, I'm just going to ask, um, the other two characters are Moon and the 14-year-old girl, Kathy Ellerbeck. Kathy makes um, some comments that show that she views our main character as an educated man. Thomas Birkin is an educated man, and she thinks she seems to think that he would have a good conversation with the priest, who's you know clearly an educated man. Do we know anything about his education other than um, his ability to kind of restore paintings? Are we given anything else, or are we just meant to like pick this up based on Kathy's comments? Because I don't remember anything about like being like, oh yeah, he's he's. I don't know where it is in the novel, but they do address that. His father was a soap maker, and um, oh yeah, and invested in his education, but couldn't afford Oxford, and so he yeah. trained to be an art restoration person under as an apprentice, though. Um, okay, but. As I mean, you guys already know this, like it's England's still such a stratified society at the time. And they're in Yorkshire, which is mm. the like Kentucky, right? Like the, the it's it has like this very like country reputation for being like simple country folk, um, like good country folk, um, but definitely not associated with like high the educated classes, yeah, like highbrow yeah. classes and and her father is a porter. And so that like, he's a professional, I, Tom Birkin's a professional man, an educated man, but I don't think she knows he's not like Oxford and Cambridge necessarily. Um, but yeah, okay. that, I mean, yeah. I, I think you're bringing up a really good point that, that English society is definitely under the microscope in this novel. Um, and village life, um, even though everyone's thrown together, still has a very strong sense of the stratification of the society. Um, yeah. And and that is part of the novel. Like he becomes friends with Moon um, and they're on the same level. Like they're thrown together and they thankfully like each other, but they are yeah. like, they're they're kind of, they're the two, right? That are in this village that are on the same level. Um and yeah, so it that that was really interesting. And one thing I think we haven't talked they about. They literally is just how don't live in so the village. funny. Yeah. Like so funny this novel is. So funny. Like I was like laughing my head off a couple of times, especially in the second half, which we'll talk about next week. During the second half of our discussion. Um do you guys make anything out of how boring the three priests are that we meet in the first half? Or I don't know if boring's the right word, but just kind of like um, yeah, they're white. They're the whitewash. Yeah, they, it seems like it, right? They're just like they monologue. They're they're not. They're just not kind of they're buffoons. Kind, yeah. Or they remind me of uh, what is it, Collins from Pride and Prejudice? Yes. Mm. Like 
maybe not exactly the same in terms of their characteristics, but in terms of how the book seems to view them. Yeah. Right. Like under the veneer of this whitewash, there is something real, something stark, something hidden and some kind of hidden judgment that's under the surface of this veneer. And like the symbolism of that is remarkable. Like that Mm -hmm. is just, it's, it's so good. So good. So then the question is, is there also something besides judgment? Under hidden, yes, is, you know, is there a mercy or right. grace I can't or whatever? See it yet. I'm like right. holding my. I just, oh, I can't wait till next week. Yeah, and and I think I mean one of the the big kind of like revelations in the mystery is that the painter is a genius, and Tom kind of recognizes the deeper he mm-hmm. gets into the restoration, the the more he recognizes that he's dealing with a, a painter of extraordinary skill, which is really exciting. You're like, oh then we're going to be taught by this painter from, you know, five, 600 years ago, we are going to learn something from him. And I'm curious what we're going to learn from him. Yeah. And that, even that idea of like learning something from the painting is, is treated kind of interestingly because there's that passage where is it Kathy's talking about what the things they put up in the church and everyone was thought it was going to be, too ostentatious or something and they didn't want people to be distracted by it. So they'd want them to draw something simpler. Well, I don't remember what it was exactly. Um, But the, the notion of like spiritual learning is an interesting one in this book too. Like what role does art have in teaching us or developing us spiritually as opposed to uh, just dogma or, um, you know, even there's the, 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 it's not, um, it's not an accident, an accident that uh, uh, Sunday school shows up in this book and they have lunch yeah, with yeah, yeah. Dicker and he's kind of, again, he's kind of a buffoon. He's a, he's a Collins and, and they go to Sunday school and the kids all want him to come back because he teaches them stuff and tells them stories that's got absolutely nothing to do with Sunday school. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But he gets, at least he gets some life in him. Right. And exactly. He has some life in him, which is ironic given his circumstance Exactly. And his lack of, um, his sort of apathy for the the church itself. And yet he's one of the people that cares the most about the church itself, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, that whole, the, 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 the relationships of, of people with the church and then the insertion of apathy into that is so interesting Mm. because he, he cares so deeply for like, the beauty and mystery of the place itself and the art and and the things that the church was using artistically to create its, the experience that its parishioners would have when they were worshiping. He cares deeply about those sorts of things. But then you've got these other villagers and you've got the vicars and all these other people who have whitewashed all of that. And then you've got these people who have covered up all of that beauty, all these things that he cares about, all of these things that were about creating a sort of multifaceted experience for the parishioners. They're covering it up and they want it to be ex- sort of exclusively about dogma, exclusively about teaching, exclusively about like, these are the facts of the, of the faith. And he, which of those is more true, mm. more deeply spiritual, more profoundly spiritual, I think is one of the questions of this book. And that's why he's uncovering 
the mural, but it has to be, I think dramatically from a narrative perspective, from a storytelling perspective, it has to be somebody who is ambivalent about the work of the church when you're trying to ask these questions. That's a great point. Like if you, if you brought a in a guy point. who was like, he had escaped the war and he'd escaped his marriage, but his faith was intact. Yeah. Kind of like what's the, the mystery for us as readers in terms of what the, the questions the book is asking and the uncovering of the mural is like, is a totally different thing. And yeah. that's why I think like you read Jaber Crow, Jaber has to go into Port William full of doubts. He has to have left the mm-hmm. seminary coming into this place, not sure that he believes any of it anymore. It's the same idea here. That's I've great. thought about Jaber Crow in this book so many times. I think there's so much overlap. I wonder if Wendell Berry's read it. There's so much overlap. Well, I, um, oh, go ahead, Tim. I just want to, this is just a story. I don't want you to lose your place, Heidi. I, several years ago, helped a friend restore this hundred plus year old Methodist church. We pulled up all of these old thin pine boards from the floor to discover heart pine, like this Mm. old, gorgeous, beautiful wood had been covered up by these nasty little white pine planks. And we were like, what in the world is going on here? And the other thing that somebody at the church had decided to do was they took these faux stained glass um, pieces of plastic and they covered up the windows. The windows, the church was sitting in the middle of this beautiful forest and windows looked out over this cemetery and these old oak trees. And so, you know, one of the first things we did was we pried these old faux plastic stained glass pieces down from the windows. And the man who owned the building was a friend of mine named Lee. And Lee ran into the pastor of this church who had left. The church had gone on. Like the the town that we were in wasn't big enough to support the church. So anyway, Lee ran into the pastor and he was like, pastor, we just got to, I mean, we've just been really curious about this. Why did you guys put those pieces of plastic up on the windows and he was like, well, I didn't want people looking out at nature while I was preaching a sermon. And we were like, oh, no, 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 no. And I have a feeling like a similar kind of feel here with Tom. It's like, gosh, like, why did you like cover up this mural? And like, what exactly are we doing in church here? And it's, it, it just reminds me so much of, of Jaber Crow, like the there has to be an outsider that comes in and sees things afresh. Mm-hmm. And that's who our main character is. And, and uncovers some of the. And uh, yeah. And uncovers what's been lost yeah. or covered up or forgotten. Yeah, exactly. Heidi, sorry, I cut you off. No, you're fine. There's also this tension between different streams of Christianity in this town, right? We've got the church of England and also the Ellerbecks who are full on Methodist evangelicals. Um, and like the, and, um, and there's multiple references to Tess. You guys yeah. caught that? Oh yeah. Right. Mm. Lots of references to Thomas Hardy, which also takes on that, um, that kind of movement within English life of the evangelical movement and the huge impact that that had on, on, on their culture and so it isn't, and, and, you know, you have like the Methodists that are presented as like very um, zealous for their faith, 
but it's presented a little bit like over the top and ridiculous and cartoonish, right? Um, and they're the, the less educated people um, mm. versus the Church of England, which is this like whitewashed veneer um, over the fundamental, right? Like there's, there's the, oh, I really want to just say what's on that mural. Like there, that, that there's, there's this veneer you know over the fundamental and that's the, why don't I take my earbuds out? No, no, why don't I take no. my earbuds out? Okay. No, right. uh-uh. because that, you know, hopefully with even for our readers who haven't read ahead, right. Like yeah. You don't want to, I don't want to give, give too much away. Situation to me. Um, but there's this aspect of fundamental humanity that is being covered over by the church of mm. England um, mm. versus this like zealous, like a flame faith that is kind of just out there with evangelicalism, but, but it's, it, it's so out there that it's, it's a bit unrefined. It's a bit lower class. It's a bit, um, unrestrained and it has this like quality of chaos to it. Um, and, and the, the, how those collide is part of, the tension of faith that's brought up in this novel as well. And I think that's that wildness, uh, as you put it, is maybe why it appeals to the lower classes, people who were not, there's no benefit to them to be part of some, some kind of older order, not least an obvious, you know, and it turns out maybe there was. (laughs) Is it possible (laughs) to have an innovation in English Christianity, right? That's the, that's the question of, of that kind of like thunderous, like, um, Methodist preaching, the tent revival kind of things, which we also had in the United States, but in England was an attempt to innovate the faith at a time that the faith was being whitewashed and worldly and And and, um, criticized and test. The test is the criticism of that. Right. Which David, one more quick thing before, before I'm done talking is you brought up kind of this idea of the whitewash uh, of the village people. And yet I, what I loved about the novel is that Carr and through, um, through his narrator, uh, through Tom Birkin is like, there is that question, like Tom Birkin is, he's so disenchanted with faith and with himself and with the world. Um, and yet the village, the people of the village are presented like so lovingly and tenderly. There's no finger pointing. It doesn't have that, as you said, Tim, that kind of like self absorption of the modernist, like and and a glorification of their own suffering that the modernist movement seem seem to have. Like, let me tell my story and talk about how sad my life is. And, um, and, and that is, that's not present in the novel. There's just this tenderness and this love for the village that I find just like very compelling and beautiful. And another reminder for me of Jaber Crow like the kindness that Jaber Crow has for the people that, I mean, he's one of the people that he's around and there's no sense of judgment for them, yeah. despite the fact that he doesn't share a lot of things with them. Okay. Um, let's wrap it up here. Uh, final thoughts, either of you, before we, before we go, Heidi, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, you mentioned earlier, you asked the question about the brevity of the novel and I, I find, I, I, I think I love that 
I think I love that. Although I wish, I wish there was a little more, especially about the art and a, a, um, about the mural, but I do really love the brevity of it. It's more like I want more, not that I think there needed to be more, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah. it just like wet my appetite and I wanted, I wanted a little more. Um, yeah. but I also like the fact that it's short because it's about a, a single month, right? Right. It's a month in the country. And so that like that, how the, the novel is structured, the form of it is a novella really. Um, I, I find that to be, to work like really, really well. You're left with this like richness and this mystery, um, within this like very condensed, but well-written, like he hits all the points. Um, but I do wish that I just, I, I felt like there could have been, a, even if it had like 15 more pages, I, I would have loved that with <laughs> like a little bit deeper on maybe as, as we get into the second half of the novel, I, I just, I wish there was a little bit more about, about the mural itself. Yeah. Well, we can complain about that later. <laughs> I'm looking forward to obviously like the full uncovering of the mural. And I'm just really curious about what's going to happen with Alice, Alice Keach. Um, oh, also it, it seems like when Tom went to go visit uh, the Keaches at their house, something seemed to be going on with Alice. Like she was anxious in a way that she isn't when she's just sitting in the church watching the work be done. So I'm curious if there's something there. Good questions. There is also a big question at the end of the novel, which uh, readers have uh, very different takes on. And I can't wait to hear from you if you all agree on what happened. There's kind of a occurrence at the end of the novel that we got to, I'm just going to throw that out there. We'll discuss that next week. And then of course we'll do our Q and a, and then uh, as I mentioned after, this book is Loris. So we'll get a schedule up for that soon. Um, all right. Well, Tim, it's great to have you back. It's great to have the gang back together, back to the, uh, tra- it's great to the be close back. Reads, uh, traditional pattern here. And yeah. um, we got, I realized after this, we have three books left this year. We've got Loris, a gentleman in Moscow, and we've got, uh, uh my name is Asher. Lev. My name is Asher. Lev. So, um, Yeah. Which I've never stuff. read that. So I'm super excited about that. That's a, that's a big one for you, Tim, right? I love yeah. it. I just love it. Yeah. If, if a month in the country is the one that you fought for, my name is Asher Lev is the one that I fought for. Not that we were being opposed by anybody. Right. Clearly, David, Heidi and I were on your team. <laughs> advocating for a month in the yeah, country. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. Well, um, we'll wrap it up here. Um, again, congratulations to Tim and Galen and congratulations to Logan and Carolyn and uh, welcome to the world. Baby, I guess we're calling him Moses. So mm-hmm. baby Moses. Um, uh, and don't forget that you can um, you can be tuning in to our series over on the bonus pods on Steinbeck's East of Eden. We're, uh, we've done two episodes so far. We've had, we're having a great time. It's a great book. Uh, so if you want to sign up for that and get other bonus content, you can go over to closereads.substack.com and you can support the work that we are doing here uh, in the meantime. Uh, so with that... For Tim McIntosh, for Hideaway, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.